HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following episode of The Speakeasy has been brought to you by TechServe. This January, responsibly dispose of all your old electronics at one of 10 e-waste recycling events held across four boroughs of New York City, hosted by TechServe and the Lower East Side Ecology Center. Computers, printers, monitors, and lots of other electronics are being accepted for safe and proper recycling. Visit www.techserve.com recycling for more information and drop-off location details. Boys, I'm mellow as a honeydew. Yeah, that cat is high. Hello. Welcome to the Speakeasy with Damon Bolte on the Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is Brian Miller, legendary bartender and all-around amazing mixologist, if I can call you that. I hope you don't mind. I'll let you get away with it. All right. We won't say that again. How's it going? Good, man. Happy to be here. Great. Welcome to the show. Um, You've worked in several cities and several different bars, uh, uh, many of them being heavily pressed and a lot of your recipes being heavily pressed. And to most of of the the listeners that that know about uh, current bar bar culture and, and cocktails and spirits... Uh, your name won't be any mystery to them. Uh, you've worked with uh, <laughs> you've worked with a lot of different spirits brands, uh, uh, won many competitions, and worked at some of the the leading cocktail bars in the United States and the world. And it's very nice of you to say. Yeah, well, it's nice of you to be here. Um, so you're originally from Seattle, yeah, and you moved here after Seattle. I moved here pretty much right after I graduated from college at Washington State. Um, when I was like 19, I came out to New York and I visited my brother Danny, um, who's a photographer out here, and uh, had like the best experience of my life. Um, totally blown away. Uh, one of my highlights was I got to see Les Paul play cool. at the Village Underground. And uh, when I came back, I was like a totally changed person, and my dad... When I when I graduated college, I was like the first thing I was going to do was like I'm moving to New York. My dad was like, I think the worst thing I ever let you do was go to New York, and I was like, <laughs> actually, I think that's the best thing you ever let me do. Yeah. Cool. Were you uh, were you bartending during college, or was this something that you started doing afterwards? No, I didn't really start bartending until I moved to New York. Um, the first job I ever got here, um, 
a restaurant job, I should say, I ever got here was uh, I worked at this place called Grove uh, over in the uh, over on the corner of Bleecker and Grove, and it was just a great little place, um, kind of like a little French bistro. And I started off as a food runner, and I actually didn't even know what the hell a food runner was, <laughs> um, and. Of course, I found out I was literally running up and down a flight of stairs <laughs> every night for a year. Um, Carrying five, six, five or six plates. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty ridiculous. But um, then I became friends with the bartender there, um, Steve Ginsburg. And uh, Steve got me behind the bar. And at the time, it was just a, um, a little wine and wine and beer place. And uh, did you start a bar backing, or did you? No, I just jump went right, right into uh, it. Unfortunately, I went right, right into bartending. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of a, a lot of the really good guys in the industry today have started off as bar backs, so they have that really good background. Me, I was just kind of spoiled uh, going straight into bartending. But um, I, of course, <laughs> I left there just as they started to get their full liquor license, so yeah. I wasn't really making drinks there other than wine and beer. And then I left, and then I went to. Uh, to Benny's Burritos over in the East Village, which was kind of funny when I started working at Death & Company. I was like, wow, I've kind of come full circle. I'm right down the block from where I got my bartending, uh, <laughs> where I earned my bartending chops. Cool. Um, now, that wasn't uh, that wasn't until a little bit later, though, right? I mean, you worked at uh, Pegu Club, and you worked with Julie Reiner and Andre Saunders for a little while. Yeah, that was probably the time when I when I got into bartending, um, a little higher end bartending. I mean, I, I, I worked in different dive bars. I've worked at the Jolly Roger, which I think is now the thirsty scholar in the East village. And I did some time at, um, at Boulay. Um, but nothing like what I experienced at Pegu club. I mean, Pegu club for me was, uh, well, one of the best interviews I've ever had in my life sitting down with, uh, with Julie and Audrey. And, uh, basically I, I had read, uh, just before I started working there, I had read Dale's book, uh, The Craft of the Cocktail. Right. And literally everything that Audrey was doing there was exactly like right out of Dale's book. Like everything I had read about was going to be available to me. Essentially at, the bar manual for that place. Yeah. It was it was absolutely amazing. And of course, I had just returned from Hawaii, so Julie and I had a natural connection there. Um, and it was just, it was a lot of fun sitting down and talking to those two and... Uh, just wasn't an awkward interview where it's like most of the times it's like you're sitting down with people and, and yada, 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 you say a bunch of crap. And this was very comfortable as much like sitting with you. It was like, okay, cool. Let's just talk about cocktails. Cool. And, uh, Audrey was, was really nice and very accommodating. And you also worked with a lot of like other real, very well known bartenders these days, uh, that are working. They've since gone on to do, to open up, some of the other really well-known bars around the city and around the country. and uh, Yeah. I mean, as a bartender, honestly, I've lived a very charmed life. Um, yeah. I've worked with some of the biggest people and at least had the pleasure of working with uh, some of the biggest people in the industry and become really good friends with some of them as well. I mean, when I was looking for work, I was at, um, I was working with uh, Jerry Banks, who was a really early, uh, a really tremendous early influence on me. And we were at the, the Juniper suite. I had just moved back from Hawaii and she was opening this place and that fell apart like a house of cards. But she told me that, uh, Audrey was getting ready to open Pegu club and having moved back, I went, you know, uh, my fiance Cavill and I, we had moved to, uh, Hawaii and then we were in Seattle and then we came back to New York. So all in all, it was about a year away. And I just felt like the town had totally changed. I was like, where do I go to, um, 
to make great drinks. And I just decided, I was like, okay, out of the blue, I was going to email Dale DeGroff and, and just say, Dale, I really love your book. I want to do the kind of bartending that you do. How do I get involved? And at the same time, Jerry had told me that Audrey was opening Pegu Club, and she's like, send your resume to Audrey. Uh, well, I did that on the same day, and on the same day, Audrey and Dale exchanged my resumes. Oh, cool. Um, and so they were, so I got an interview with Audrey, but like Jill, Dale's wife, like called me up and she's like, Dale's doing an event. Would you like to come? And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. I'd love to yeah. work with Dale. And uh, doing that event, that's where I first met Julie, uh, Julie Reiner. And working with Dale was like nothing I had ever seen before. I mean, most of the time when you were a bartender, um, it was like, so what else do you do? And working with Dale, it was like, it was like working with royalty. I mean, I saw people like, basically, he's like, do you want to kiss my ring? Like people were just kissing up to him and um, he wasn't full of himself at all. He, right. Like, he was really, he was the one guy back in the day doing this. He, he's, I mean, he was the guy that brought back, like we talked about uh, earlier in the week, uh, he was the one guy that really started bringing back the classic cocktails and the respect of the cocktail. Um, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dale. Right. I mean. You know, and when Dale was doing it, I don't think Dale was known as a mixologist. I think Dale was known as a bartender, and and I mean that in the utmost respect. Like I think Dale is, he is everything that a bartender is supposed to be, and more so. Not only does he make great drinks, but he's just an incredible human being, and uh, that and and the charm that he possesses is what makes him great. Same thing with like Murray Stenson is like these guys. They not only can bartend circles around most of us, but they could also talk circles around us they're right like they're really great with the people that they that, that they serve uh, you know an interesting an interesting thing that's happening uh and these days especially with i kind of feel like there's a a third wave of this renaissance of cocktails the third or fourth wave and you've got a lot of younger guys and girls that are getting into it and it's nice to see that the quality of cocktails has gone up and the quality of bar service and uh, just the immense amount of knowledge that people have on the subject nowadays uh it's really turned it around and sometimes you know like you were just saying uh when people when you told people you're a bartender they're like all right what else do you do are you like an artist or a musician <laughs> right. are you going to school are you doing something like that and just speaking of like delta graph um you know his son leo is another very highly respected bartender and absolute he's a ship off the old block yeah I mean, exactly I, I i couldn't think of a higher compliment than say that leo is just like his dad yeah and you know to me that that's a really respectful thing and it also changes the whole perception of how people look at uh, bartending and how really just in the and the service industry in general um about how oh uh, this is what you do it's like what else do you do are you a musician or uh, an artist or a writer are you in school or what's going on here um but you know when you have somebody at that respect level of dale and then his son following in his footsteps it's like all right this this is something that you can actually do and do well and make a good living at it and be respected these days um absolutely yeah. i mean you know and it obviously it goes beyond dale and leo it, right it, i mean there's so many people julie and audrey and sasha and like phil ward joaquin simo evan freeman uh toby Chikini. i mean there's a million people in this industry that do an amazing job and they're not just good at making cocktails they're good at making people feel comfortable when they're at the bar because yeah, that seems to be the 
uh, <laughs> what people are, are are scolding us these days for is being that is being true. a bunch of snobs, being a bunch of snobs and uh, a bunch of know it alls, and uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there are, are some of the younger crowd. I'm not going to name names, <laughs> but uh, there there are definitely why not quite a, <laughs> well. That's that's for the next <laughs> that's show. Not for us. <laughs> uh, now, uh, you know, there's a there are a lot of people out there that are getting into it for reasons that a lot of bartenders like yourself and like Dell and all these people put all this, they laid down the groundwork for a lot of us, other bartenders to come in and start out at a higher level than what a lot of you guys did. You know, I mean, I've worked my share of dive bars, but you know, I, I, it, I haven't been doing it as long as a lot of people. And, uh, you know, when you get that crowd in that, uh, that, you know, uh, they want uh, something simple like a amaretto sour, like we were talking about earlier. Right. And you say, "Well, we don't carry amaretto because it blah blah blah," or like we only carry small batch bourbons and artisanal products. And somebody just wants to come in and have a good time and have a drink. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. Yeah, Making I mean, feel comfortable. Pe- people are coming into bars because they either want to drown their sorrows, they want to disappear, they maybe just want to enjoy themselves. And it's like, who are we to make someone feel bad for what they want to drink? I mean, nobody... uh, You shouldn't make somebody feel bad for what they want. I mean, when I was at Pegu Club, uh, I thought it was kind of funny that... Uh, people would get upset. It was like, oh, they want a vodka tonic, you know. I was like, why get upset at that? I was like, they can pay $11 for a vodka tonic or they can pay $12 for a cocktail. I was like, go ahead, drink your vodka tonic. That's fine. As long as it makes you happy, it's great. The benefit for me is, one, it's a quick drink to make. Two, I get to buy yellow chartreuse. I get to buy Fernet Branca. <laughs> I get to buy Chinar. I get to buy high batch or high quality bourbons and rye. I was like, Whatever brings money in, whatever makes people happy, that's what we're doing. It's like Gary Regan said. It's like, you know, bottom line is this is a service industry. Yeah, We're supposed to take care of people. And, I mean, I know my friends that are like, yeah, well, Brian, you just stay in service. Like when I worked at Death & Company and Pegu Club. But part of that for me was when I was trying to learn this business and and trying to learn the drinks. Because the people, you were talking about some of the the amazing people I've worked with. Um, The opening staff of Pegu Club was like an all-star game. I mean, it was Jim Meehan, it was Phil Ward, it was Toby Maloney, it was Eric Simpkins, uh, Jim Kearns was there, Sammy Ross was there. Um, there were just amazing bartenders working there, and it was like, just soak up the knowledge from those guys and yeah. like learn from them and, and, and have fun. We and you were also Boys, I'm mellow the honeydew. Yeah. Hey guys, you're, li- you're listening to the Speakeasy on the Heritage Radio Network. My guest today has been Brian Miller. We've been talking about uh, bartending and classic bars and bartending around the world and in New York City. And uh, we were just talking about, uh, if you were in fact listening, um, <laughs> we were just talking about... Uh, some of the great bartenders at Pegu Club, where Brian worked for quite a little while before moving on to Death and Company. Let's let's talk about Death and Company for a little bit. Wow, um, absolutely, positively, the best experience I've ever had um, behind a bar, um, from top to bottom, from Dave and Robbie, uh, the owners, to Phil Ward. I mean, 
<laughs> there is no Death and Company without Phil Ward, to be honest. No disrespect towards Dave and Robbie, but uh, Phil was, he would, he's the man there. That place wouldn't be the place it was without Phil. And um, I'm really fortunate to call Phil uh, one of my best friends, and I've learned so much from him. I would probably say two of the people that have been influential to me as far as like, at least like learning recipes and, and growing as a bartender would be like Toby Maloney at uh, Pegu Club and, um, and Phil Ward, probably Phil more than anything else because I spent three and a half years with him. I mean, there was a great joke that Phil and I were husband and wife. You know? <laughs> now, both of those guys have moved on to start up uh, Phil starting Maya Well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, ironically like a block away <laughs> yeah part of the death and company family you know yeah and then toby's in he's at the violet hour toby's all over the world um right. you know he's as him and his business partner jason cott and actually joaquin who works at uh, death and company as well um changing the cocktail world one day at a time um those guys toby's doing amazing stuff he's actually um they're kind of branching off towards middle America, which is a great thing. Nice. We nice. can get middle America to follow the rest of us on the <laughs> left and right. Then, uh, you know, we'll be all right. That's, that's funny you bring that up. Cause, uh, recently in certain publications, like, uh, for instance, like imbibe magazine and other food publications like Bon Appetit and like Savour, you're starting to see more recipes from bartenders in the Midwest and in like mid America and like, coming from around places we've never seen before really like st louis there's yeah uh, austin texas and houston kilgore's from there right yeah and then you've got mindy kuchin from houston at anvil you've got bill down in austin you've got uh, some really amazing places kirk is stopping all down in uh, new orleans now he went from the violet hour down to uh back home to new orleans great great bartender you know we we talk a lot about in this industry and this style of uh, bartending and in this culture, we talk a lot about we we tend to stay, you know, in certain cities, or we always did. Um, oh, uh, we have a caller. Hold on, we have a caller. We do have a caller. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Say, hey, I have a question about how to make a good drink. Uh, with uh, moonshine. With moonshine? Yeah. Like real moonshine or this uh, this new wave of uh, clear whiskeys? No, real moonshine from Pennsylvania, from the from the Allegheny Hills. Wow. Oh, cool. Uh, I actually have a jug of it at home <laughs> from around Somerset, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, Brian, you wanna you wanna elaborate on that one? Uh, wow, uh, real moonshine. I I gotta be honest. I've never actually had real moonshine. I've had the white whiskey, you know, from different brands and stuff like that. Um, sometimes when you're coming from a great spirit like that, uh, an old fashioned. I mean, something where you just let the sp- you know let the liquor itself shine. This being like a like a classic old fashioned uh, 19th century style or like a 20th yeah yeah not style. the not the punk rock with the orange and the cherry or something like that but yeah. um, talking I, about sugar bitters yeah bit sugar, sugar bitters you know orange and lemon twist maybe a little demerara sugar yeah. in there um, something like that just keeping it simple because the spirit is really what you want to shine you don't want to like overpower it or anything like that not not to ever not to ever uh, shine like meaning. Uh, more, more of the shine, or less of the shine compared to the uh, 
to the mixer that goes with it? Well, less is more. I mean, you can look at a classic cocktail like an old-fashioned, and it's like it's a little bit of sugar, it's a spirit, it's got bitters, perhaps an orange and a lemon twist on it. You want to, you know, you want to taste the moonshine, but you want to kind of accentuate the positives that are in the spirit. You don't want to throw... Um, something heavy on there, either a lot of sugar or cranberry or orange juice where you don't even get to taste the moonshine. I mean, what's the point of doing a great spirit like that when you're just going to cover it up with something else? I, I would also like to interject here that if, if it is uh, real old school <laughs> moonshine, you might uh, you might want to dilute it a little bit before you start mixing it because that stuff can, it can burn you up on the insides. <laughs> it can be quite dangerous. Um, well, yeah, my my friends in in my immediate uh, uh, facility that 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 I go uh, club with, uh, they're worried about going blind. <laughs> well, that's a that's a fair <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair concern. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, like 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 we were saying before, uh, it would be best to dilute it. Uh, before you start drinking, because it can uh, really with the with the fears of going blind, it's more about the uh, the impurities in the distillation. Because you've got the heads and the tails from the distillate that contain more congeners and impurities that can actually be harmful to you. So just be careful with that. And uh, when you mix it, uh, like I said, mix uh, mix it carefully. You don't want you don't want your house to explode. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you. Great show. Thanks, Thanks man. Bye. Brian, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about uh, some of these cocktails uh, and the the future of like where you're going with this. Um, a lot of people don't really maybe know of you as I mean uh, people that know I you hope not <laughs> <laughs> know of you as a uh, as a, a big guy into tiki drinks, but uh, you happen to be very involved in in the tiki culture, and these are. These are drinks that a lot of people haven't yet regained respect for because of the fact that they think it's just a bunch of different rums mixed with a bunch of different juices. And uh, I think it's people selling. I mean, if if you have that kind of mentality towards tiki drinks, I think you're selling uh, selling those drinks short. Um, Tiki is... uh, that's the best to explain this. I mean, it's kind of like Don the Beach Comber said. He's like, what one one rum can't do, three can. Um, and it's not about just making an overpowering drink that makes uh, that gets people drunk. Um, the zombie I, it is one of the more complex drinks out there. Um, it's probably my favorite drink. And, and it was one of those things where several years ago, I saw an interview with Jeff Beach Bomberry in the New York Times. And he was like, there's... You can't get a decent zombie in New York. And I was like, well, that's kind of insulting. I was like, well, maybe we should do something about this. And I was um, fortunate enough to get an opportunity to work with uh, Lynette Marrero. And she was consulting on a restaurant uh, called El Ataria. And uh, they asked me to be involved. And it was mostly like Indian food. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with rum. And I'm going to try to pair the Indian food with, with tiki drinks. And I was dead set on trying to figure out how I was going to make a zombie. Um, I read uh, Jeff Berry, Beachbum Berry's book, uh, Sip and Safari, which in my humble opinion is probably one of the greatest cocktail books ever written, not only just for the recipes, but the stories of the people that were involved in that movement. And um, 
I decided I was going to make a zombie and I did everything I could to like figure out, you know, I, I followed, basically I followed beach bum berries recipe, but I just used the rums that were, uh, available to me here. And thankfully it was a success and I ended up bringing it back to death and company. And, um, but it's one of those drinks that's like, there's so many layers to it. And just like other drinks, I mean, at death and company, we had the QB cooler, um, I've served the Mai Tai there. I've done whatever I can as far as tiki drinks. I've tried to make them there. And I think one of the nicest things was Joaquin Simo, who I work with. He was like, uh, you know, at one point, Death and Company probably was the best tiki bar in New York City. And I was <laughs> like, well, that's, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, those guys, God, they, they have the patience of saints because, you know, I would make those drinks and those guys would like, get customers that would ask them for it and be like, Oh God, here's one of Brian's like 12 ingredient drinks. You know, I don't really uh, want to have the to do first this. one that comes to mind is the, the Winchester, which is not, it, not only one of the first drinks I actually had at death and company, but, uh, it, it's one of your original, uh, zombie variations, which actually uses a few different kinds of gin, gin a little bit of St. Germain. Uh, yeah. It was, it, it was my second attempt at trying to do, um, do a tiki cocktail. I mean, I was really intimidated to try to create a tiki cocktail, especially with so many great ones out there that haven't been replicated um, in bars. But thankfully, um, there are a lot of people out there now that are doing tiki or tiki-esque type drinks. Uh, Giuseppe uh, Gonzalez and Richie Picado at Painkiller. Uh, Julie Reiner working with Joe Swifka at... Um, at Lonnie Kai, who you actually worked with at Ellis yeah, Harry. I train I, I I trained Joe at uh, at Ellis Harrow. Joe came in and uh, he was just so eager. He was kind of like one of those guys that like really, in a way, was kind of like myself. Like he really wanted to do good cocktails, but he wasn't in an environment to do it. So it was like handing him the tools to actually do great cocktails. Joe just like took off. I mean, he does. I I, I think it's still on the menu at Lonnie Kai, but uh, the Black Pearl was really one of my favorite drinks um, that Joe did. Um, God, it had, uh, I mean, how can you go wrong? It had like rum and uh, Old Forester's bourbon in it. Mm -hmm. So great drink. Um, and Julie has always, you know, with her passion, uh, her history coming from Hawaii and her passion for drinks, she does amazing stuff there. And it, it, it it's so nice to see that coming around because for me it was like Tiki was the last original cocktail movement, you know, in the United States, and now it's kind of having a renaissance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing that when we when we typically when we think about like mixology and like the the origins of cocktails, um, we think about the 19th century, and we think about guys like Jerry Thomas, and we think about anyone from Jerry Thomas to Harry Johnson and Charles H. Baker, like this right. 19th century, early earlier 20th century. These guys who wrote all these original cocktail books. You got Jacques Schraub. You've got Robert Vermeer, all these guys. We think Absolutely. about them as being the the main creators of all the classic cocktails. Then you get into the early 1930s, and you've got Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic just going crazy with this stuff, and in a completely different style. And I think these drinks being fun and very tasty and not uh, a bunch of whiskey that's hard to take down for most people, they're... They're still very potent, just very, uh, very like on the sweeter side. Uh, I would say more on the the fruity, fruit forward side. But there's more layers to that than than 
I think have been respected in the last couple yeah, of decades. I, it's been kind of botched in a way. Um, people think of these drinks it's like you know half blue curacao and blended. But when you look at drinks like you were just saying, like with a zombie, with so many different layers and so many ingredients, really, and things like the uh, the Caribbean punch, for instance. I mean, mm-hmm. it's got absinthe, almond extract. Uh, it's got sarsaparilla in it. It's right, so many different what, layers. Yeah. It's one of my favorite uh, tiki cocktails. Um, and the way that these drinks are built, I mean, it's just these minuscule measurements, these like, just tiny little bits and pieces of different uh, ingredients to make this one amazing flavor that's balanced the right way and just multi-layered. And, um, I think people think that like maybe they're too hard to make, that they're too difficult. You know, it's like, oh, there's 12 ingredients. So it's like, look, I worked with some really great bartenders and we've done crazy things when I was at Death and Company. It was like, oh, we're going to have a flip menu with like six different flips on there. Or we're going to put the Queen's Park Swizzle, you know, which can be a labor intensive drink. We're going to put that on the menu. Um, bartenders, if they are pushed to, you know, go the extra mile and work hard on drinks, they will do it. They'll become really fast at it. I mean, the guys at Death and Company uh, really, I feel, have like pushed the boundaries of like what they can get away with serving to customers. When most people are like, "Man, I don't want to make a Queens Park swizzle." It's like the swizzling and the bitters and blah blah blah. I was like, "Well, they started doing that at Milk and Honey, and you know, we put it on the menu at Death and Company and and flips with eggs and cream and what a sticky mess." It's like. I've Joaquin has looked at me several times and been like, really, Brian, 12 ingredients. We're putting the QB cooler with a half a teaspoon of ginger syrup <laughs> in there. He's like, come on, man. Can you do anything to make, make my life more difficult? I'm like, I probably could if you gave me time, you know, I could find <laughs> another tiki drink that would be difficult. But the, the blending, I mean, it really kind of adds to the mystique of like bartenders, like being able to blend a drink and have it perfectly balanced. I mean, Honestly, I wouldn't be as passionate about tiki drinks if it wasn't for people like, I mean, I'm sorry to name drop and stuff like that, but 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 Jeff Berry and Martin Kate. I mean, those are two guys that are like seminal characters in the tiki world. Martin is um, beyond belief. I, I think what Martin does is he takes, at Smuggler's Cove, it's like he takes tiki drinks. He does the uh, the standards and the classics. But then he also does a twist. You know, it's like a tiki drink doesn't have to be four different juices and three different rums. You can use different spices, you know, use the things that Don the Beachcomber has created, like Don's spices and uh, Don's mix, you know, whether it's one, two, three, seven, whichever ones, um, you know, and Beach Bumberry, who's basically unearthed all of this for us. It's like he dug up a relic and was like, hey, here you go. Yeah. And. Beach Bumberry just uh, recently came out with a book. He had uh, The Grog Log and Intoxica and Sippin' Safari. Taboo yeah. Table. Taboo Table. He had all these books that uh, he had previously put out over the last little bit over a decade, yes? Mm-hmm. Um, just came out with a book called Remixed. Mm-hmm. And it has, it's basically like a compendium of a lot of these recipes. His first two books, The Grog Log and uh, Intoxica, it's like a combination of those right. two books. But also, adding into that, some of the uh, more modern recipes. In fact, you have a, a couple, two or three recipes and remixed, right? Probably. <laughs> bro, <laughs> excuse me. Probably the highlight of my, my, my limited career um, is, being in, is being in his books. But not only myself, but like a bunch of other bartenders from across the globe uh, their new recipes for tiki drinks. 
which which are amazing. I mean, I I, I think it's kind of funny that um, Europe is so much farther ahead in the tiki culture than the United States is. And I was like, it was born here, you know? Um, it's like somebody doing blues and jazz better than the United States. It's kind of embarrassing. It's like, <laughs> why, why, why haven't we picked this up? And maybe, um, you know, people today think that, that, that tiki is a trend. And I hope it's not, you know? I, 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 I hope it's, it, it's here to stay. I mean, I'm really passionate about it. I think it's a great thing. I think it's a nice um, alternative to the backlash that you and I have talked about, um, that people today are like, oh, bartenders are snobs, and and they're elitist, and they're making cocktails hard for other, you know, it, it, it's hard for people to get a drink without feeling bad. And, like, I don't think that Tiki incorporates that. I think Tiki is all about fun. Absolutely. Um, it's all about rum, and... Uh, People talk about, oh, well, what about classic cocktails? I was like, man, I've seen a lot of great classic drinks redone with rum. Um, I I will say one of my favorite new classic rum drinks is doing a Negroni with rum. Uh, Joaquin did it at Death & Company. It was uh, Smith & Cross, Antica, and Campari. And it's freaking fantastic, nice. you know, because Smith & Cross is a... A bull in a china shop. Yeah, know, which sure is. It's, it's great, but you're right. It is. <laughs> um, also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Joaquin Simo also come up with the Latin Quarter? Latin Quarter, yeah. Which is oh, another good absolutely. rum drink, uh, a classic. It's a Sazerac variation with a Zacapa rum. Yeah. It's an amazing drink. It's a fantastic drink. I mean, in some ways, I kind of chase after Joaquin. He does really good things when he was coming up with the Kingston uh, Negroni, which is his Smith and Cross Negroni. I was working on something called the East India, uh, trading company, which was like another Negroni with Sherry. Um, his, uh, Latin quarter, I did something that was kind of like that. Um, God, I can't even remember the name, but it was like a, it, it was the same thing. It was the Sazerac, but with a little bit of rum and pear. And it's, I mean, Joaquin and I both kind of have like a love for rum. He's incredibly knowledgeable and I don't know, when I think about all the people talking about how um, bartenders are mean and snotty, uh, you just haven't met Joaquin. That's right. I mean, absolutely, you know, not to kiss anybody's butt. Well, <laughs> maybe a little bit. But uh, Joaquin and I think Jim Meehan are two of the nicest people that I've ever met behind a bar, like consistently, like just genuinely good people. They'll tell you, they'll tell you the history of anything ad nauseum, but uh, they'll also just kind of smile at you and make you laugh. Yeah. Now, we were uh, talking earlier about these guys like <clears throat> Phil and this being Phil Ward, mm -hmm. Dobie, these guys uh, branching off to do their own thing. Now, you've been talking a little bit here and there about possibly opening up a bar soon. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's something that I've definitely thought about. Um, I, I, I would like to, I think, open my own place. Um, currently, the <laughs> the way the market is, it's making it a little tough for me to uh, to open my own place. I I mean, I I have a possible investor and I have an idea, but you know, those things sometimes they kind of fade. I mean, I I would like to open a tiki bar, but maybe have I missed the boat? You know, I mean, other people are out there doing it already. Giuseppe and Julie and. God, today I even read about some place called Riff Raff. You know, it's like a tiki club thing. They're already doing it. Um, 
I don't know. I'd like to think that the world could sustain another tiki bar, and hopefully it would be mine. Um, I don't know. But, I mean, God, to be perfectly honest with you, am I bar owner material? I don't know. I mean, you read books like Harry Johnson, you know, when he talks about it, it's like, look, just because you can make great drinks doesn't mean you're going to be a great bar owner. And I guess that that thought kind of hovers in the back of my head, like, am I really the guy to, like, open a bar? But for me now, having stepped away from Death & Company, I just miss bartending. Yeah. I, I, I just miss serving people. I mean, in my life, it's never been about me. It's always been about the customer. Right on. Um, and you know what? Uh, hanging out with you, being on the other side of the bar, and flip-flop when I'm behind the bar and talking to you about this stuff. Um, I've, I, and I'm sure that all of our, our listeners are picking up on this, but I, you know, you talk so well about all these other guys that you've worked with over the past and, uh, you know, like Joaquin and Jim and all these guys and how great they are and, uh, how good at like the actual, like active service and bartending and the creativeness. And they've got like the whole package. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, that, I don't think I like personally. I don't think I could be in in a position that I'm in uh, as a bartender without having run into guys like you guys, um, be it a death and company or just out at events, working like just very closely with you guys and uh, learning so much. Uh, not only about like drinks and history and the quality of ingredients and uh, technique and everything. Um, but just seeing how well received uh, the customers that are at your bars are, and uh, it's just been it's been an amazing pleasure to talk to you and have you as a guest on the show. Thanks for having me, Damon. I appreciate it. Um, really. My guest today has been Brian Miller. Uh, this has been the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio. Tune in next week, where my guest will be Thomas Waugh, head bartender of Death and Company. Kick ass. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Thank you, David. Thanks for listening.